Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, which you've already heard and I will be reading throughout the sermon. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in our gospel lesson at the beginning in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24, on the night Jesus is betrayed, after Judas leaves, we're told Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will hold on to my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who does not love me does not hold on to my words. Now, the amazing thing is we can't love God unless he first comes to us with his word and the Holy Spirit creates in our hearts that new man. Because having a sinful nature means all we can do on our own is despise God. But once we love him, it's that same word the Holy Spirit works through that tells us that Jesus was righteous in our place, that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus rose so that we have eternal life. We'll cling to that word. And when it says we will make our home with him, saying God will continually shelter you in that word and keep you. And we ultimately get to see what the outcome of that home is in our lesson in Revelation. But the one who does not love me does not hold on to my words. They'll tamper it. They'll change it. They'll say, you got to do your best and then God will do the rest or something like that. So in our sermon text today, we actually see an example of what it's like to hold on to the word of God and not to hold on to the word of God. And so in Acts chapter 14, we're told starting in verses 8 to 10, in Lystra, there was a man who was sitting down because he had no strength in his feet. He had never walked because he was lame from birth. When he was listening to Paul as he was speaking, Paul looked at him closely and saw that he had faith so that he could be healed. Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man jumped up and began to walk. Now something different in Paul's ministry happened in Lystra, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's on his first missionary journey. And all along, Paul's method always is to stop at the synagogues, that was the churches that that the Jews went to, and tell them the Old Testament, what you and I call Old Testament, this all points to Christ and he's come and it's all fulfilled. At Antioch, the Jewish people get mad and and revolt against him and, and he goes to Lystra. Lystra is the first time Paul and Barnabas go to a city where there's no synagogue. So they come to pagans who have never heard the word of God. Now, what was Paul preaching that day? We're not told, but Paul himself tells us in in his first epistle to the Corinthians what he always preached. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit revealed something to him. This man who was born lame from birth, the Holy Spirit had entered that man's heart and gave birth to that new man. And he revealed to Paul it was there. Now, Miracles in the New Testament are done under one of two circumstances. In the first case, the miracle is done preceding faith so that the person would have an idea this is somebody to listen to. But when a person has come to the faith, which is what the Holy Spirit reveals to Paul here, then the miracle is to to show the person their faith is in the right place. Now, we don't need these miracles today because we now have God's word recorded in the Old and New Testament in its entirety. And so... God performs this miracle through Paul to tell this man who's just become our brother in Christ, your faith is anchored in the right place. And he's going to need it after what happens then. 
And so brothers and sisters in Christ, here a miracle is done to confirm the faith a man had already holding to the word of God. And so we see what it's like to hold on to the word of God as he hears it and believes in it and puts his trust in the Savior through that word, which is a stumbling block to the Jews, but foolishness to the Gentiles. But now he knows it's the wisdom and God's love. And then things go south, right? At verse 11, we're told, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the main speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and garlands to the city gates, because he wanted to offer sacrifices along with the crowds. Even before I had become a pastor, I had observed that our sinful nature will jump to any even illogical conclusion rather than to trust in the word of God. Paul had been preaching Christ crucified. This was a new God to these people, and we know it's the only true God which Paul would be preaching. They see a miracle, and what's the logical conclusion? The God this man is preaching must be the God. To, we want to hear more about this. What is the absolute illogical conclusion? This must be that false God whose statue we have outside our city gates that we think protects it. It seems that they came to the conclusion that Zeus had come down to test them. And, and in, in pagan mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And since Paul seems to be doing the bulk of the preaching, they assume that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes, the messenger of the gods. They jump to a very illogical conclusion. But we'll do the same thing if we do not have that faith that clings to the word of God. One of the most illogical conclusions we'll jump to is that God must be appeased. They thought we've got to give these bulls and sacrifice to Zeus because he's testing us and, and we might be failing and we don't, we don't want him destroying our city. And certainly we can look at it as God is holy, but if we see God as, as angry of our sin and so I've got to do something, I've got to give enough offering, I've got to go to church enough times, then God will be appeased. We look at it completely wrong. God is perfectly holy. And the minute you add some unholiness, you no longer have holiness, period. Same thing with the truth. The minute you add a lie, even a small one, it's no longer the truth. God is holy. And for us to stand in front of him and not be destroyed, he has to make us holy, for we are unholy. We have bought into the lie that if, if we do something wrong, something unholy, we call that a sin, then I just got to do enough extra holy things and I'll be, and it'll make up for it. But that's completely missing it. You have to be holy 100% of the time. We can't do this. Doing extra holiness isn't going to make up for it because you have to be holy, period. You can't have any unholiness. And so, stuck in our condition, lost in a lie, God took pity on us and became human. He was perfectly holy for you. Stood up to every temptation for you. But he had to remove your holiness. And so he dies for you so that his blood is poured out upon you and removes your unholiness. Sometimes we can turn around and think of God as just being an, an angry God. And so he beat the stuffing out of his son because he's mad at your sins. God is a loving God. He sent his son to save you. 
And so we buy into this lie of work righteousness like these people did. They thought that the, the Zeus had to be appeased. And, and we think if I do enough for God or if I want something from God, then I got to do something for God. And we miss God's love. We miss that pure grace. They probably thought that Zeus was tricking them. Let's see if I can get them to follow this other God and then I'll destroy them if they do. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we often think God is tricking us. Scripture tells us that God tests us. And we look at those tests and we think of those as God tricking us. Oh, God's trying to trip me up. Not the case at all. God is all-knowing. It amazes me to think that before God said those words, let there be light, God knew every decision I could make in my life, but he also knows what I will do. He knew what I'm going to do tomorrow before he ever said, let there be light. So God knows all things. When God tests us, it's not for God. It's not for God to trick us. When God tests us, it's actually for us. He's either showing us where our faith is strong, where we're not jumping to the wrong things, where we're not letting go of the word, or to show us where our faith is weak, where we're not properly applying his promises in his word. But when his tests are revealing to us where our faith is weak, he's also telling us, now I'm going to strengthen you there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, The people here of Lystra, they should have listened to the very sermon of Paul preaching Christ crucified for them, and they would have had it right. But they didn't hold to the very words they were hearing. And in our own devices with our sinful nature, that's exactly what we will do unless God sends somebody along with that word to tell us that God has saved us. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we miss that there could have been quite a temptation for Paul and Barnabas. In verse 14... We hear, but when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard about this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing these things? We too are men with the same nature as you. Now, God took on our nature. True God became true man. I find it very interesting, and I think it's because they have just preached that, that God became true man to save us, that they use such very careful wording. We are men with the same nature as you. We're not deity at all, period. We're not even the God we've been preaching about to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they probably, because the sacrifices would have happened outside the city gates, they probably didn't hear about it right away. But when they did, they did something about it. But they held to the word. It's quite a temptation again, though, to do something different. Many a charlatan being given these circumstances could have said, oh, you think I'm the protector of your city and his messenger? Mm, I see something to line my pockets with. Sadly, many Christians with good intentions could say, ooh, I think that I can use this to God's advantage. I'll pretend to be Zeus and Hermes for a while and gradually lead them along. Again, the minute you mix a lie with the truth, it's no longer truth. This was a mistake that happened in Christianity. In fact, one of the great times it happened in history happened when the Bishop of Rome, now called Pope Gregory, around 500 A.D., he goes out to the marketplace and they're selling slaves. They had been sold from this land, from the land of the Angles, Angleland, and they had blonde hair and blue eyes. And he said, where are they from? And they said, they're angels. And he said, no, they're angels. But he thought we should send messengers to these people. We know the area today is England. But when he sent out missionaries, 
He told them, find the areas where they worship their pagan gods and turn them into places of worship. And, and they would do things like they would take their pagan gods and they would replace them with dead Christians, with saints. And this ultimately becomes the missionary practice in northern Europe. And it ultimately leads to the worship of saints. Oftentimes we can be tempted to think that God's word needs us to adjust it a little bit. And so that we can get it out and spread and bring people to, to his word. You'd be amazed that most heresies in Christianity began with well-intentioned hearts thinking that God needs our help to get his word out. Paul and Barnabas could have faced some pretty strong temptations here to take advantage of the situation, even saying, we'll take advantage of this and, and gradually introduce the people to God. But they understood the word of God, and they wanted them to know the truth right there and then. And so we see what it's like to hold to the word of God, not just by the man who came to faith, but by Paul and Barnabas. And what do they tell the crowd? We are preaching the good news to you so that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to go their own ways. Have you ever had somebody that insists on doing something wrong and it's actually going to be to their own harm and you can't talk them out of doing something different and finally you say, fine, do it. Have it your way. God created Adam and Eve. The devil lied to them. They should have known better. They were the crown of creation. When they fall, God comes down. He talks to them. He gives them faith. He promises them the Savior in Genesis 3.15 and they had the word. But their two oldest sons, but Cain and Abel, they get older. And Cain sees God, like the crowd does, an angry God who needs to be appeased. So he gives offerings to God to get God off his back, to get a blessing from God. He doesn't give out of love. And he murders his brother. Cain gets to talk to God, but he never will hear that God is loving. God lets him go his own way. He brings up his own children in his own way. We eventually get to a point where there are only four men, Noah and his sons, and their four wives, that are believers. And God wipes out the earth with a flood. Now we're right back to it. All that's left are believers. They're sinners, but they have faith. And by the time we get to the Tower of Babel, the world has already turned its back on God. Why is it that people fall from the faith? Because they insist on it. And then they'll raise up one generation after the next. So Paul here is explaining to them exactly how they came to where they're at today. But he, he points out, we're preaching the good news so that you turn from these worthless things. And he's especially pointing to idols where you make it out of wood. It's so powerless it needs you to make it instead of God who made everything. But how do you worship false gods? And we always think that faith is mostly about the afterlife. But like I said, when you actually study the false religions of mankind, you had a false god you prayed to if you needed more money. You had a false god you prayed to if you needed more crops. They were about blessings now. You and I might not make idols today, but don't we make a false god an idol out of our money and our possessions? Our stomach needs food and our body needs shelter. But when we make that the point of our existence, we notice they're worthless. They're never satisfied. I ate this morning. I'm already getting hungry again. They're worthless. They're always coming after us. But when we hold to the word of God instead of holding to those things, 
Everything's put in its perspective and we're promised God will provide for you right up until the time that he calls you to the eternal glory one for you in heaven. And so Paul continues in verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without testimony of the good he does. He gives you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He fills you with food and fills your hearts with gladness. If we didn't have the Bible... I can look at the fact that we have common structures in our arms and in our legs and stuff with other animals and everything. And I could say, logically, I can deduce that one God created all of this because we see his signature. We see his style. But I will never hear in all of that that God loves me and has given me life in him. I will see that he provides for me. I have a conscience and so do you, so it tells me that God has an idea of what's right and wrong and he wants us to know it, but I will never know that he loves me unless somebody comes to me with the word and tells me that God took on human flesh for us and and died for us. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul here is saying, yeah, God, God said, fine, have it your way and turned his back on all this, but he didn't completely turn his back. He continued providing for you and left you hints. But brothers and sisters in Christ, when we hold to God's word and we get that put in our right perspective that it's all about new life in Christ. And when we have that, then we understand, yeah, we need food and water and shelter, but God will provide those things as we keep our eyes focused on Christ on the cross and off the cross. So we see here, trust the word and you will see God's providence. Finally, in verse 18, we're told, even though they said these things, they had a hard time stopping the crowds from sacrificing to them. They're telling them, don't do this. And the crowds still are trying very hard to do this. And, you know, the sad thing is we're told in verse 19, which isn't part of our text, that some of those Jews came from Antioch and they turned the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. They literally stoned Paul, drag his body outside of the city. And he comes up and walks back to Antioch where those Jews had came from to preach the word of God again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we stubbornly will cling to anything but the word of God. And we see that in our text with these crowds. So it's a comfort for us because only God's word, that Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but the eternal life and salvation for us, only God's word can change our stubborn unbelief. Now let me wrap this all up with the paraphrase that comes out of our second lesson, out of Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, describes what it's like to have life in Christ. The city's walls also have 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. There are 12 tribes in Israel, and there were 12 apostles, and so that's used to describe both the Old and New Testament. This is the foundation of what we call the New Jerusalem, the invisible church. When you trust in Christ, you're a member of it now, and it's God's Word that gives you that trust, because the Holy Spirit works through that to make you believe. It seems foolish that God became a man and died for me, but He did it for me, and I'm thankful. So then he gives us the outcome of that in Revelation 14, 22 and 23. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No need to see a temple to protect or a temple to make sacrifices to. The Lamb made the sacrifices for us. And he's always there at the center protecting us for all eternity. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God has given it light and the Lamb is its lamp. John began his first gospel by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And later he says that the light is the the light no darkness can overcome. 
See, Christ has led you into his true church, the new Jerusalem, the invisible church, with his word, and that word keeps you planted there. And so today we've seen the application in Lystra of what it's like to cling to the word and not cling to the word, and we thank the Lord that he's given us that light of the Lamb and has put us right in that new Jerusalem, the invisible church. Amen. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.